Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome, everyone, to Amazon Legends. And today we're talking to Colin McIntosh. Colin is the founder and CEO of Sheets and Giggles. And this is like an unbelievable story. And I'm dying to hear it from Colin because it's all about bedding, but it's all about making bedding out of something that you would never think of. So with that, Colin, tell us about yourself and the company and how you came up with the idea and where it started. Those are a few questions in a row, but the long and short of it is that I founded Sheets and Giggles in 2017. I founded it three weeks after getting laid off from my last startup job. And the basis of the company is that I really wanted to build a business model that I felt very passionately about, that I felt was a long-term, viable, sustainable, profitable business model that could scale. And so after my last company didn't work out, and that was very emotional, of course, getting laid off from a startup that I had invested a lot of my 20s into, a lot of my time into, and emotion into, I learned a lot of lessons from that company about go-to-market strategy, branding, pricing, consumer psychology, logistics, supply chain that I used to start Sheets and Giggles. And I'm happy to dive into why betting why eucalyptus bed sheets instead of cotton or polyester or bamboo. And so far, it's been pretty successful. And we just shipped our 100,000th unit in less than three years of operation. Wow, congratulations. Tell me about, because I heard you say two keywords for me that resonate with me. One is passion, and the other is scale. Usually, passionate people don't really care about scale too much. <laughs> and people who think scale, they are just mechanical people and they don't really look at the passion aspect. They say, what is the job? Give it to me. So tell me, how did you come up with that? You're hitting the nail on the head in the sense of my last company was all about passion. We were trying to fight against sexual assault and violence. It was a, a wearable technology similar to Fitbit, but if you pressed it, it would send out an emergency alert. It was for young women. We partnered with college campuses. And unfortunately, the, the conversion just wasn't there. It was really hard to convince young people to, on a broad marketplace level, uh, care about their, their safety proactively. And the company had a lot of other issues in terms of go-to-market strategy, channel strategy, in terms of our gross margins and, and long-term business model. And so it wasn't really set up to succeed in hindsight from the beginning. And so I learned that as passionate as we were, and as excited as we were, and as strongly as we resonated with the mission, and for all the good that we did in the world, now the company can't really help anyone because it doesn't exist. I really learned that even if you have a lot of passion, you've got to build a business that works, a business model that scales. And that's why Sheets and Giggles for me is really the best of both worlds because I get to build a sustainable company that does a lot of good in the world. We, we plant a tree for every order we receive. Uh, we help with reforestation efforts. We have a sustainable product that saves on water and insecticides and microplastics and petrochemicals. Really, really wonderful company and mission. We've donated, uh, last year we donated over $100,000 to charitable causes in our third year of business. And so I really love what we do, but at the same time, 
it's a business first. And that's important because if the company stops operating, then as big a hearts as we have, we, you know, there's nothing that we can do to, to make an impact, at least on the same scale. I was once heard this phrase that in order to finish the race in the first position, first thing that you need to do is finish the race, right? <laughs> it's kind of like putting your own in the airplane, right? You put your own mask on first before you can help other people. I look at SNG Sheets and Giggles as a vehicle to leave the world a better place than I found it, both from a brand perspective and making people happy and providing a product that improves their sleep quality and their quality of life, as well as in the sustainability field and, and making an impact on climate change, hopefully one day. But I do this partially because as one person, you only have so many volunteering hours, you only have so many capital resources, you only have so many hours in a day. And volunteering in that time and, and those hours that people spend are important. But I want I felt like I could do more than just be one man twisting in the wind. So I, but I think that you have to build something before you can continue to, to help others on a larger scale. Yeah. The other thing that I'm curious about is, you know, I heard you mention that you were working for the startup and then you got laid off. So you were really an employee, bottom line. Correct. And how do you go from being an employee to being an entrepreneur and starting your own business? You have to have an emotional break from reality, right? You have to, to go from an employee to a founder is, I think, more emotional than logical. I think that people need to have like a total breakdown before they decide that they're going to do something crazy and build their own thing. Some people, some people are just are just bred for it. For me, I was so upset at the way things ended and how abrupt it was. And I had three hours to wrap up three years of, of partnerships. And I thought it was avoidable. I really did. I think that if we had gone back in time with what we had learned, if I had been listen to slightly more. I think that we could have avoided some of the pitfalls that we ran into. And so for me, it was really about putting my money uh, where my mouth was and, and investing my life savings in something that I would control. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one door closes, another one opens, right? So right. Yeah. I, and I've actually, I've gone through Techstars a couple of times. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Techstars program. It's one of the best accelerators in the world. And I've been through the program a couple of times with 10 wonderful other companies and entrepreneurs. And I've asked my cohort, why'd you start your company? You know, why not a charity? Why not a 503C? Like, why not something that, why a business? And I always hear some variation of the same reply, which is, I was sick of taking orders from someone else. And I think that that's a common, really common thread in entrepreneurs is they're bad employees. They make really, really bad foot soldiers. And at some point, you reach a point where you've gotten fired a few times, you've lost your healthcare suddenly, you've seen bad outcomes from preventable mistakes, and you just say, all right, fuck it, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a common thread too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, you started in 2017, and you started selling. So obviously, that has to be a channel strategy. How are you going to sell? You're going to do wholesale, you're going to do retail. So mm -hmm. tell us about that. And of course, my interest is bring it to Amazon. How did you end up deciding to sell on Amazon? And what was that process? So we have um, mostly direct-to-consumer as our core channel. That was very intentional. 
My last company, I did a lot of retail. We were in Target, we were in Brookstone, we were in some T-Mobile stores. Uh, we had closed deals with a few other people when the company had gone under. And so we had a lot of retail experience. I was flying to Minneapolis every other week, flying to Seattle a lot. And as part of that, we were also on Amazon. And I learned a lot about the Amazon channel, about Amazon Launchpad, about the different teams at Amazon, how they interact with each other, how you can launch a product on Amazon properly. And I basically learned from that experience that launching a product at physical retail, especially a product that's not an impulse buy price point, is such a risky proposition. And so I changed my outlook on launching products. I mean, we launched a product at physical retail in 2016 when the entire e-commerce landscape was was shifting beneath our feet and and brick and mortar was going through a crisis i learned a lot about what i what i didn't want to do what i should have done differently so philosophically with sheets and giggles what i'm doing is we're building a brand that hopefully becomes if it isn't already a nationally recognizable brand we've been on good morning america we've been in all these different publications we have some really cool attention from different celebrities and movie stars. And we've been on The View on ABC. And I really love that attention. And then eventually my hope is that retailers who see the value of having a known brand, an exciting brand, a differentiated brand on their shelf space will let me come in and build a really powerful merchandising experience for brick and mortar retail. It doesn't currently exist in the betting category, but until then it's all direct to consumer and Amazon. And, and that's very intentional. And the breakdown there is about 80, 20 direct to consumer versus Amazon. So what I'm hearing is a, is really a deliberate strategy. What you wanted to do was build your awareness, build the awareness for your brand. And while generating revenue, of course you're charging end user price. That's also smart. Uh, to make a point to the retailers yes. to actually bring you in and give you the shelf space. Correct. We've got social proof, review proof. We've built an email list of over 100,000 people who love us and trust us. We have more product lines coming down the pipe. Our, our lifetime values are really strong. And that's all very intentional because you know when we launch at physical retail, You've got to support your retail partners with channel marketing, and you've got to support the sell-through and sales velocity on the shelf. And you know, when you're a startup with a couple employees and very limited budget and not a lot of brand awareness and very small customer base, you can't really help that retailer launch your product. In fact, you're more dependent on them to launch it than, than you are yourself. And so really what I'm looking forward to is at one point in the near future, will partner with probably one larger retailer to really bring Sheets and Giggles nationwide in, in every store they have probably, you know, we'll test it out first and really dial in the merchandising and sell through and sales velocity. But um, yeah, anyone with a good pitch and a good product can sell into a retailer, but destination shopping is really become the norm with brick and mortar and very few people are wayfinding nowadays. And so if you're launching a physical retail, you really need to be a destination item instead of uh, something that's more discoverable. Yeah. Well, actually, this is very smart from the standpoint that retail is also in transformation. Nobody knows what retail is going to look like. Especially in a post-COVID world, yeah. yeah. And But yeah. you can count on one thing for sure, that e-commerce will always be here. Amazon will always be here. And most important, as a channel, that's a smarter way to start. Plus, if you build your awareness and you have the following 
then really every retailer will want to carry you anyway. I mean, they would be sitting up. I mean, we're, yeah, we're able to show sales velocity on Amazon. We're able to show reviews. We're able to show return rate. We're able to show all the important metrics. And that also allows us to dial in our business model to actually have sustainable margins at retail as well. So we'll, we'll probably go omni-channel before long, but as of right now, we're still scaling on direct-to-consumer and we're two or three Xing year over year. You know, we went from shipping our first box in Q4 2018 to hitting our first million dollar month in Q4 2020, two years. So it, it's been about, uh, quite the come up. Cool. So um, so you've been on Amazon since you started or did you launch recently? So we started the company in October 2017. We did a crowdfunding campaign in May 2018. And we launched our first, we shipped our first box in October 2018. And we launched on Amazon in March 2019. So it was about a year and a half after I founded the company and about six months after we shipped our first box. Okay. So did you choose FBA, FBM, or a mix? Mix. So I I prefer FBA, obviously, for, for Prime eligibility. Conversion rate goes up a lot with Prime. And then we do have FBM as backup inventory. So, you know, whenever we're out of FBA, especially, you know, with the logistics the way they are now, um, it's nice to have FBM as a backup switch. For people who are just starting up or people who are experiencing challenges, what would be your recommendation? If they were to choose one or the other, would you pr- recommend having the mix? Depends on their goals. So if you want to have the best margins, depends on the shipping cost that you've negotiated with the carriers, depends on your item, the the margin that Amazon is taking as a category, Obviously, look at the margin and look at which one's better for you from a dollars and cents perspective and figure out which one you're going to go with. Usually it's FBA. But then from a customer experience perspective, I really prefer FBM for a couple for a couple reasons. One is because we actually are able to better control the customer experience start to finish. And two is that we also get the physical address for the consumer. So we're able to follow up with a direct mailer there's a remarketing opportunity there as well. So I think it just depends on priorities. I think if, if customer experience is most important for you, I would choose FBM. Then I think that if margin and conversion was most important to you, I'd pick FBA. Okay. I guess it's not just one thing, right? So if you are planning to have some offline interaction with the customer, that's FBM is more suitable because you have physical. I think so. I think it. I think it also depends on sophistication and forecasting. So the tricky part about FBA is that you need to predict your sales and you need to be able to forecast your sales properly. So I, I think just starting out, FBM is a heck of a lot easier. From a you know, if you have a three PL or you're fulfilling items yourself, you can do that like that tomorrow on Amazon. FBA is going to be a little trickier in the sense of you know you've got to properly forecast each specific SKUs sell through over you know a 30 or 60 day period, however much inventory you want to load up and continually ship pallets to, to different fulfillment centers. So it just, just depends on... There is yeah. actually for our listeners, there's one more thing here, which is a non-issue for you is if you are the only seller, you're selling your own products, of course, FBM, FBA doesn't really make much difference because you are the only one in the yeah. buy box. 
but if you are competing with other sellers, right? So then FBA will take priority over FBM sellers. If you're competing with other sellers, you need to have the prime badge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You can't beat other sellers without the, the two-day prime badge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Tell us about some of the challenges because Amazon, I have this phrase that I always throw around. Selling on Amazon or starting to sell at, on Amazon is like tail wagging the dog because they come with all these requirements. And, and you look at it and say, well, we're not really doing much. Why do I have to change the way? Why do I have to do it that way? Why can't I just do it? And basically, they dictate how you run your business or some of, establish some of your processes in order to sell on Amazon. And you really don't want to do it. So you end up changing your entire business operation if you really want to grow on Amazon. So tell us about some of those types of experiences. <laughs> I think anyone will tell you that there's there's endless frustration with Amazon because it's so large and because they have to automate so many things. It is fairly difficult to get personalized attention from Amazon. I think Amazon Launchpad does a really good job of bringing startups in that are interesting and unique and, and they have cool products. And then you get a dedicated account manager, which is very useful for a little extra margin. And then the, the, the main frustration I have is the black box that Amazon keeps the customer in. And what I mean by that is specifically to give, just give you an example of my, my deepest frustration. If you get a bad review, oftentimes it's something as simple as, hey, I ordered white sheets and I got green. And <laughs> there's no way for us to rectify that customer complaint because Amazon opts them out of communication by default from the seller and they took away the public responses on reviews. You have a very solvable, easy problem that also differentiates good brands from bad brands and manufacturers from brands, you know, just people who are drop shipping product versus actually companies that are built around products would take the time to have a really great customer experience. And Amazon doesn't even let you contact the customer nine times out of 10 to fix the problem. And that's really, really frustrating, especially when it's an FBA shipment and it's Amazon's fault that they get the wrong product. So that's probably my biggest frustration is the lack of transparency and the lack of direct contact with the Amazon customer. We've had our account shut down willy-nilly without any reason multiple times. We've had, oh, four returns in King Blue because it was too dark and the customer was expecting light blue. And so we're removing that ASIN entirely. And it's like, what's like, what, like there, there's, there's all these automated systems that Amazon's put in that are not one size fits all and that don't make a lot of sense. And so you have to constantly be vigilant and make sure that you're, you're optimizing and, and improving your page. And I think that Amazon likes that because it keeps sellers on their toes but as a really negative consequence, it can cost you your seller rankings. Like we, we ran out of inventory at the beginning of COVID where we didn't have production capability for 75 days for worker safety. We had to pause production at our factories, and uh, which is totally reasonable, but we ran out of inventory and on Amazon. And so we lost our best seller rankings for three or four search terms which really reset our sales and our sales velocity to day one, which is very frustrating because it's not any fault of our own. We were able to bring back our sales online after a couple of months. By that point in time, competition had already moved in 
just by virtue of the fact that they had inventory available because they weren't they weren't selling as much as we were ahead of time. It can be really frustrating when Amazon automates some of the things that are very impactful for companies. So those are my biggest frustrations, I think. Are you looking to sell on Amazon and just starting from scratch? Or are you a CEO looking to add Amazon as another sales channel to grow your distribution and revenue base? Check out Argo Metrics Seller Concierge Services or SCS for short. SCS combines knowledge and technology to grow and manage your Amazon operation. It is delivered through one-on-one coaching sessions and provides access to proven growth tools with 24-7 support created by multiple incorporated award-winning CEO Nick Urison. SCS will help you hit the ground running and scale your Amazon operation for more quickly less drama. Find the details on the program. Visit argometrics.com. So uh, you mentioned getting shut down. So my next question was going to be, tell us about some of the crises that you experienced. So I guess getting your losing your account, not even temporarily, is the biggest crisis that when you are on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, they'll threaten you with account deactivation a lot if you miss some shipping deadlines. When During COVID, we had to transition almost everything over to FBM. And, you know, we missed some deadlines initially. We had to get better. Our 3PL had to work with Amazon to get better at, at their integration. And they threatened to, to delete your account. And to, it's it can be really scary when you wake up to an email saying, hey, you're about to lose, you know, a six-figure monthly channel if you don't fix this problem immediately. And uh, it can be really frustrating. But that's working with the behemoth that is uh, Amazon. So when you when you get hit with something like that, and it's something you've never seen before, how do you go about figuring out? Because they don't tell you what the problem is. Clearly. Not always. Not, not, it's not always clear. Sometimes it's vague. You know, you immediately got to put in a support case. There's a specific email that you can also email for escalations and for from the, directly from the CEO. It has to come from, from me. And uh, we also have an Amazon agency that we use that I've used for a couple of years that manages our accounts there. So uh, I have people who are dedicated to the channel. Uh, and then we also have an account manager at Amazon that's been assigned to us because we're a high growth company on Amazon Launchpad. And then also, if I can't figure something out, I have a network of consumer companies that I'm in the same investment portfolios of that I'll go on Slack and I'll say, hey, I got this problem. Can somebody please help me? Yeah. Okay. So you really need to have a network of resources around. You can't just wing it. You can't just make it up as you go. I mean, I know know people who wing it, but I think the other thing is on a macro level, you shouldn't become overly reliant on Amazon as your core channel. I know there's a lot of sellers and a lot of people who do 100% of their volume through Amazon. I think that's really risky. I think that you need to have a direct presence as well. You need to have a website that you own and that you control. From day one, you know, 70 to 90% of our sales have come from our website. Uh, and that's given me a lot of peace of mind because even if Amazon goes November, right, if, it, if the day before Black Friday, they shut our account down, I mean, yeah, it would, it would be a disaster, but it wouldn't be a company ender. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, I think, is diversification of risk, of channel risk is really important. Tell us about the experience you had dealing with the, uh, the peaks, shopping season, how does it impact you, prime day, and also during and post-COVID. What, what are the kind of changes that you see with the performance? In our history, we had, we've done two deals of the day. 
uh, we've done three prime days now and we've been through 18 months of COVID. So the company, I shipped the first box myself less than three years ago. It was October, 2018. Now it's September, 2021. So for more than half of the company's sales history, we've been in a, a COVID world. And so it's been really interesting to see some of the, the challenges that come with that, most specifically on logistics. So with deals of the day, with prime day, with holidays, with seasonality, the main challenge is inventory buildup, accurate forecasting, and timeliness of buildup. So are, are you going to accurately and uh, timely load in your inventory for the most important days of the year? Uh, for a deal of the day, for holiday, you know, you've got to load in sometimes up to several million dollars worth of inventory if you're going to do a deal of the day during Black Friday weekend. And if you're a small business that is, you know, not cash rich, how do you build up the inventory position to justify these type of larger deals, you know, without risking your whole cash cash position if it doesn't convert? On the day, so I think that that's the biggest thing is is the accuracy of report of of forecasting and making sure that you load things in time, especially with COVID. Every deadline that I get, every timeline that I hear, I add four weeks to it um, or subtract four weeks from it, I should say, because everything takes two to four weeks longer in a in a COVID world. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is really inventory planning. That's the main inventory planning. I wish I had hired my full-time inventory planner 12 months before I did. Yeah. 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 And all the inventory planning software, it's total shit. Anyone listening out there who somebody says, Hey, I got this inventory planning software. It's artificial intelligence. We'll take your sales history and forecast your future history. And it'll be by skew. It'll be great. It's total bullshit. There's no, there's no, artificial intelligence that can replace an inventory planner just yeah. can't do it well i mean i i have computer science and i'm systems guy analytics guy algorithm guy and i, I love numbers working with numbers and i love automation and yep. but i'm an entrepreneur i'm a business owner and i built a large amazon account so i tell everybody forget about systems when it comes to managing your inventory you have to know what you're doing and you have to be able to build your own algorithms, your own analytics based on what your business model is. So there is no such thing as off the shelf. That's it. Plug it in. And there's so many softwares that promise they can do it. And none of them can. For me, it's very touch and feel. It's very art. We've gone from less than three years ago, talking about $20,000 a month to over a million dollars a month. and you tell me how I'm supposed to plan for that type of growth three to six months ahead of time for these inventory builds while increasing your product roadmap, while experiencing seasonality, while going through COVID. Exactly. And there's that, you know, and so. <laughs> how do you anticipate COVID in your inventory planning? I mean, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so, and so, you know, we've probably spent $75,000 on software that is totally useless yeah. when it comes to inventory planning. It's, it's Excel and human beings you can build some dashboards and that sort of thing, but yeah. That's exactly. 
So the most important thing is the data and the data points. What data points you're working with and how you're using that data. Yep, yep. So, so where would you say that you are now in your Amazon journey as a seller? We're not where we want to be, to be totally honest with you. I think that the thing that I'm struggling with is the, the plateau that we reach is kind of what I call it, like where we, we've kind of hit the saturation point, in my opinion, for a product at our price point, which is in the $150 range for a set of queen sheets in the sustainable category that's flipped this option. That's a it's still a growth category. The saving grace for us is going to be two, two things in terms of our continued scale. One is going to be more products on the product roadmap at different price points. So we need to figure out a way to get a secondary product and a tertiary product to much lower price point and even a higher price point for a more affluent consumer. And then the second thing is going to be awareness of the category. So eucalyptus sheets are still a nascent category compared to bamboo sheets. There's maybe one one hundredth of the search volume. We're looking to basically grow the eucalyptus category to be the next bamboo or as big as bamboo when it comes to consumer awareness. And then we'll naturally claim a lot of that conversion share as, as one of the top results, if not the top result on Amazon for eucalyptus sheets. I see. Okay. And that will obviously translate into your channels. Correct. Yeah. You, the, the category awareness is my, my big thing. I want, I want every American the same way that most people have heard about bamboo sheets. I want most people to have heard about and understand that eucalyptus is also an option. Well, uh, along the way, your awareness goes around so much that you may get the B2B operation also off the ground. And then that will... Oh, we've, like- no, we've got a small B2B. We've got a B2B channel. We, have, we sell wholesale to uh, one mattress company uh, that we private label for. And then we also have a B2B channel for hotels. We just started that up this year. Oh, I see. And the retailer, I was actually, I had the retailers in mind. So retailers may come in and say, we want this. Then that will obviously, it's a game changer for you, right? Now, I think that the, the thing about retail is just that it has to be repeatable, bankable business. And, and I'm not going to work with a retailer until we come up with the perfect merchandising, product mix, price points, and brand awareness to where they know that if they've worked with Sheets and Giggles, they will be able to bank on that revenue per square footage. And so I'm really excited to do that. Probably in 2022, 2023 is when I I feel like we'll do a big retail play. Okay. And tell us a little bit about your Amazon team. So I'm heard you mention the, the people that you go to when you get suspended, but what does it take to build an Amazon account that scales to a million dollars a month? The 80-20 of it is an agency. You need to have an agency that you trust that'll represent you well and that you can go to when you have issues. And then the other part of it is there are, there are decent ad softwares out there for ad optimization and, and performance optimization on Amazon. We've used a few different softwares, none that I would fully recommend without reservation. And then, you know, you have to be willing to spend money. You know, when you start out, you have no reviews or 10 reviews or five reviews. You've got to make sure that you're gathering reviews. You've got to make sure that you're you're communicating with your customers on the back end through an Amazon third-party app. You've got to make sure that you're you're driving traffic to your page, even if it's expensive paid traffic. 
And so in the beginning, we did that with, you know, buying, buying keywords on things like cooling sheets, best sheets for summer, things that were still pretty broad, but not as quite as broad as queen sheets. And uh, in-house, how about in-house? How many people do you have working on Amazon or you just have- we, we only have 10 full-timers. We've got a bunch of agency partners. We obviously have our 3PL that I've talked about a few times. We have our manufacturing partners. We have four or five agencies, web dev agency, Amazon agency, performance and content agency, video agency. We've got SEO agency. And so, you know, we've really built SNG to be super lean from a, from a full-time uh, perspective, but on any given day, I would say about 40 people are touching the company. What I'm hearing is you outsource the, the, the work to the expertise and that, that's smart because they don't waste time. You don't have to train them. They know what they're doing. Um, and, I, and I bring on full-time people when we have a need for, when, when, when I'm noticing that there's 40 hours of work a week for a job, um, that's when I make the hire is when I know that I can support that person full-time and I can bring that expertise in-house. And yeah. yeah. As far as coordinating between these agencies, because that's also another job. I run, I run all the agency, I, I run all the agency relationships. Okay. So you are the one, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, like I don't see a ton of the, the only difference I see is payroll commitments and in-housing certain expertises. So I think that there's certain things that are commodified. I think that like there's some things that we pay for. Generally speaking, if I'm paying an agency for something, it's an expertise that I feel like has been commodified where it's potentially it's a more transactional function versus something that I really want in-house like creativity, writing, visuals, design, things that are that are very product development or inventory planning, I guess something that's very core to, to the business and to who we are. And my director of product, Mike, has 40 years of textile manufacturing development and supply chain experience. My marketing team is very heavily indexed on creatives instead of on performance. So I think that that's the harder skill. I think that those are the kind of the ways I think about hiring versus agency relationships. Okay. Question, if you could wish one thing as a policy for Amazon to change, I heard you mention the black box. What, what do you think that would, because there's all kinds of things going on right now with third-party sellers and others. Uh, so what would that policy, at policy level, what would you like changed? It would definitely be around customer communication. And I know that the reason that they do it the way they do it is because if you allow people to email the Amazon customer, the people who are kind of bad companies or bad marketers, they will just inundate people with messages and upsells and, and sales. And so I understand why they don't do it because it would become a spam uh, folder item really quickly. All the emails from Amazon would go directly to spam. But I think that there needs to be a better way of engaging with people who choose to reach out to you and so, for example, anyone who leaves us a review, I should be able to contact that person. There's, there's, no, there's no reason why someone who takes the time to go and leave a review on my page, especially if they say, hey, I, my box came without a pillowcase. It only had one pillowcase, you know, like, or, or whatever it is. Something that's so easily fixable, it's a manual error. 
that's just right there for the, the improved customer experience. There's no reason that I shouldn't be able to reach out to them and fix that problem proactively. And so I think that, that Amazon is slightly overprotective. The second thing that I would add is an upsell feature after checkout. And I've sent this idea into Amazon before. I don't know why the hell they don't do it. It's the easiest win in the world for them. It would make them billions of dollars. But after checkout, after you complete your checkout, it should have a button that says, hey, you just bought white sheets from Sheets and Giggles. Do you want to add on pillowcases with it? Did you forget to add a duvet cover or a comforter or a throw blanket? And the attachment rates on post-checkout upsell are huge, like 25, 30% attachment rates because people have already given you $100. They've already given you $150. What are $30 pillowcases? What's another $80 for a duvet cover to really complete your bedroom? And for some reason, Amazon doesn't like free money. I I don't know. All they have to do, they already do hold the credit card information for a certain period of time. They don't charge that card until like an hour later or two hours later, I think, because they want to make sure they give the customer time to edit or cancel the order if they have remorse and they don't want to package it and send it out that quickly. So they already do hold the card information and they can simply add something onto that order. They just have to have the gumption and throw a UI around it and they haven't done it. And I don't, it's, Driving me crazy. Driving me totally crazy. It's 90 minutes. They they hold it 90 minutes. So if you 90 minutes. Yeah, right. And I'm telling if you bought a computer, do you want to add AirPods to your order? Thanks for your order. Do you want to add AirPods? They do it. They do it. You know, customers also bought. They do that during the checkout process. But the post checkout would just be. I mean, literally billions of dollars in extra business. Well, I, share, I share my own experience. So in the old days, I started selling on Amazon in 2004. Old school. <laughs> things things were very different then. And of course, they evolved. And I, I, I was a seller uh, actively selling for like 10 years. And uh, I discovered to capture the buy box, the cost was the total cost. But some people were gaming the system by simply charging the shipping separately. Right. But what they did, what they did was, they were very crafty. They didn't allow the primary shipping method. They only allowed the secondary shipping method. So what was happening was, buy box calculation was only taking into account the primary shipping calculation. Oh wow. So, of course, if you added that to your cart and you checked out, you would end up paying the, the higher shipping, but they were winning the buy box, you see? So I that's, so, that's so interesting. So the customer sees the lowest price and they get out. Yes. And then, you know, some people will go back, but most people will yes. just go complete the checkout. So I discovered this because I built a whole repricing system. This is way, way back when it wasn't even available. Nobody knew about it. So I was using, that's how I scaled my orders. So I go to Amazon and I said, look, this is what I discovered. I sent screenshots. You you guys have to fix this. You know what they told me? It's website behavior. (laughs) So now where you are coming from actually has two obstacles. They have to change the website behavior and they have to look at it from business development standpoint. And the two have to come together, create all kinds of policies around it. And then it's so it's so easy, though, because right now it just says 
thank you for shopping. Do you want to continue shopping or view your order? All, all they have to do is, is the customer, you know, they, they know what customers buy with each item. They just yeah, have it's to. It's ridiculous, but that's how they operate. That's crazy. Anyway, aside from the customer communication, I would make them billions more dollars by adding a very obvious feature. Cool. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Colin. This has been a great conversation. You really uh, shared a lot. And your journey is, is obviously very uh, impressive. So uh, I wish you a lot of luck. And I'm sure that uh, you'll get what you want way before when you want it. So thank you. I appreciate that. I, I have like a lot of entrepreneurs, I have bad imposter syndrome and don't think I deserve any success. So I appreciate you saying that. And uh, thanks. Thanks very much for having me on. And if anyone needs to find me, I'm really easy to find Colin Sheets and Giggles, sheetsgiggles.com. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.